Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. One of the topics that I have been touching and that's extremely alive for me has to do with business and in particular regenerative business or, well, the next level of sustainable business, if you will. Um, and I am extremely happy to be talking about uh, talking about this topic with uh, one of the I mean, your resume is so long that I'm, I'm not even going to try to uh, try to uh, introduce it, Marcelo. But but I'd rather let you to do it. But um, to frame it lightly, you've been extremely involved in the B Corp movement, which is one of the most inspiring movements that I've seen in in this uh, move towards more regenerative business. And um, we'll circle this topic today and see where it takes us. Uh, so, welcome to the podcast, Marcelo Palazzi. Thank you very much, my love. I'm a pleasure. Uh, so, I'm Marcelo Palazzi. I uh, started uh, as an entrepreneur, student of economics, of philosophy, of theology, uh, at the time mostly in London. Uh, my real interest uh, was uh, going back to you know, Greek philosophy, uh, the ideas of uh, eudaimonia, the well-being for all, and uh, also oikonomia, so as an economist. As all economists should know about oikonomia, which is uh, in the Greek understanding, it was that uh, economics is a practice for the good of the household. So for the, the good of the household in Greek times is now the world, the global, the globe, the planet. So in a way, oikonomia, economy, really should be a practice for the benefit of the household. So that was my kind of starting point. And uh, 15 years as an entrepreneur in the family business uh, in environmental technologies uh, in the, say, uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, and then we sold the companies, uh, UK and Italy, and I started a small foundation with uh, a Dutch friend, Progressio Foundation in Rotterdam uh, at the Erasmus University. We started in 1989, and uh, we wrote two books around, one was the, the, Towards the Civic Economy, so again, Economy and citizenship and citizens and civic are very, uh, you know, interwoven. And the second book, uh, which was actually the PhD thesis of my uh, partner, Paul Kloppenburg, uh, which I edited, uh, was the idea that economy is not what we understand as, uh, you know, competition, scarce resources, but it's what we call it, it's the quest for utilization value which goes back to the civic and the eudaimonia, so that the real purpose of economy is to create this benefit, value for everything that economy touches. So people, planet, etc. So uh, that was the genesis of the foundation. And uh, now 32 years later, we have done uh, over 300 projects in maybe 35 countries. The last big project was uh, setting up the B Corps in Europe. It's a movement of companies, uh, for benefit companies. We now have 4,500 around the world, including a, a, legit, well, a legal uh, statute that exists in uh, eight countries called the Benefit Corporation, which by law basically attempts to bring these ideas of eudaimonia or economia into the actual working of a company. And uh, maybe one or two other, say, big things we have done uh, in, in 2005 for, for nine or 10 years. We co-founded a Telberg Forum in Sweden with uh, Boo Ekman of the Telberg Foundation, uh, which brought together many leaders across the sectors, all working uh, on the question of how on earth can we live together, uh, which is very, very uh, special years uh, for all those who came, you know, from uh, Kofi Annan, the King of Sweden, to the fishermen in Vietnam, uh, it made a real big contribution, understanding system change and a more enlightened understanding of the economy. And maybe second other thing which was significant was uh, we created a, we helped to fund a microfinance company in Switzerland called Responsibility, which is now gather more than 10 billion euros for microfinance. Uh, so, uh, you know, many years ago, I met Muhammad Yunus, and I believe that his model of microfinance, microentrepreneurship, uh, were really uh, quite disruptive, at least at the time, or 30 years ago, 25 years ago. 
And, and that was a very successful venture that continues to this day to be very successful. And then many other projects with the UN, with the EU, all around the idea of entrepreneurship as a, as a vehicle for human progress. So I'm very glad to be talking with you, Amit, about all this. It's so inspiring to hear. It's one of the things that, that was going through my system as I was hearing you was that, you know, this has been going on for such a long time. And, and I mean, we are now it's, we are in the climate emergency and, and it's, it's on the headlines everywhere that we are. We need to desperately this change. And then I hear you speaking and you've spent your entire career um, in this field already. And so it's one of the things that I got curious about is how, how did you get into it? How, how was it so clear for you that this was the, the topic that you would devote your life to? Or was it clear? <laughs> you know? It became clear pretty soon. So when I, I was studying economics and uh, one of my professors said to me, oh, wouldn't you like to be a tutor in economics? Uh, and I said, oh, well, that's quite that's an honor that you asked me to do that. So I said yes. And uh, particularly then when you have to sort of not only learn for yourself, but learn and teach, you start really digging into the stuff. And uh, it was very clear that neoclassical economics had become very reductionistic and had neglected what, you know, it was discussed already in Greek times. And, of course, in a way, uh, other traditions, maybe not so much in economics, but this, certainly the value system, they go back to uh, many of the faiths, you know, whether it was Buddhism or Hinduism and so forth. And uh, this has got nothing to do with a religious discussion, but it has to do with the values, human values. So the human values that underpin the economy uh, were neglected by neoclassical economic theory. So that was, for me, the starting point, that if you believe that as human beings, I use the word reverence, so I think reverence for people and for planet, for me, is at the beginning of everything. And that is part of most of our universal value that are practiced by uh, faiths and also non-faiths, you know. So the whole idea of reverence was certainly not embedded in economics. So that's how I started my journey in thinking and looking and searching for, on the one hand, uh, in those days, 35 years ago, there was also much more uh, connection between law and economics. The whole, whole idea that the economy has to be governed was very, was quite normal, you know. Uh, but of course, the neoliberal paradigm assumed that, well, you don't need to govern anything. It's sort of like the free, you know, the, the visible hand of the market. The market will find solutions. Well, we know that that is not true, but already 35 years ago, and already, of course, in Greek times, uh, it was very clear that the architecture of, uh, of society, institutions, the law, now we talk about accounting systems, you know, the fiscal systems, they have to be governed by, by human beings in the interest of the whole. Otherwise, they go in all kinds of directions, mm. which is what happened, I think, in this 30 years of uh, excessive neoliberalism. So for me, it was, there was an inconsistency with what uh, had become a very reductionistic way of thinking economically with the wider issues of values, of ethics, of uh, reverence, etc. So that's how it started. So maybe just to make a connection with now with climate, with planetary boundaries, which, by the way, uh, Johan Rockström uh, came to the Telberg Forum in 2006 or seven. That's a bit the beginning of the planetary boundaries discussion. Actually, there was an article that was written together with the Telberg Foundation on this. And the connection for me is clearly this word reverence. Uh, you know, for, for decades, for centuries, the environment, the natural resources were so abundant that it wasn't really a big question. But of course, reverence for people was still a big question. And now we have a whole different uh, planetary reality. So we have to really, well, reverence for the planet is fundamental. And so the economic system had to be adjusted and all the systems to be adjusted in accordance to this reverence to our planet. So it's really, it's not an environmental perspective. It is an ethical uh, value perspective. From a value perspective, we need to change our systems in order to be able to revere the planet and what the planet is. The two reflections that come up, but one, I was recently exposed to this perspective that of, of like technocraty or technocratia, like that this, this concept um, that is to some, some degree built into our system, but there isn't 
an aspect of the economy only kind of having reverence for itself. Like there's a, it's almost like a, a closed loop that is that is spinning in its own wheels. And so there is that external factor perhaps or control or checks or balances, how it relates to the rest of the world or the rest of the system um, in a way that's that's missing a little bit. And I think it's very interesting, especially to think about in, in these times when we are talking about, let's say, solving these systemic issues. And, and then, of course, like if we are taking a complexity view on this, I mean, there isn't, it's hard to think about solutions. It's more to talk about sort of influencing or being with what is already there or picking up, uh, enforcing or like pushing, pushing different levers, but like also respecting that it's very hard for us to know what a specific solution will result in in the end. Like it's this quote about the, the combustion engine is the solution to the horse shit problem. <laughs> that I that I enjoy, but I, I also hear you speaking about values and fundamental principles, and you are or even though you are, I mean, if you you are partly at least an economist and, and a business person, you've you're also drawing from philosophies and all of these, which is much a much wider concept. So, I mean, those are just reflections from my from my side. It seems that that you've been interested in the being and, and people and the the nature as such. You know the. Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, again, as as an economist, I must say that all economists must, uh, you know, submit an apology that we made economics be kind of uber alles, as we would say in German, mm. whilst in reality, economy is only a means to an end. Economy doesn't have a means in itself. Economy exists to be able to this is eudaimonia to provide well-being for people and planet. But planet doesn't really need well-being. It needs to be left alone, basically. <laughs> planet needs to live uh, and people need to well-being. So we have uh, blown, overblown economy above uh, the much wider um, you know, tapestry of life, which is to do, of course, with biology, with uh, physics, with engineering, with uh, religion. So uh, life, is about much more than the economy. And now this is one of the, uh, you know, people have written about this, uh, this so-called problem of the financialization of the economy mm. uh, and also the distinction between real economy and the financial economy. So partly by design, partly by uh, the way the world has developed, uh, those who are responsible for finance, for money, I've created a system where uh, money is no longer the means, but has become the master of what we do. So we need to actually readdress the balance and put economic and economy where it belongs. So it is basically a tool for much wider objectives. So this, in this discussion, you know, it's you know, I remember twenty-five years ago, which admittedly I would have, I would have agreed. I still agree now. You know, we had years of socialism. You remember Sweden was a socialist country. I lived in the UK. We had, uh, before Mrs. Thatcher, a pretty socialistic kind of culture. Of course, Italy had communism, France had communism. So we had lost sight of uh, also uh, the, the side of efficiency, of uh, productivity. Uh, I give credit to that. We, obviously, we should be productive. We should be efficient. But towards a means, which is not just accumulating capital or, or wealth or wealth in terms of money, but it's towards achieving the well-being society. So we are confusing ends with means. So the, the end is not being efficient. The end is providing well-being and the means is, okay, efficiency is one of the means, of course. Yeah. And, and efficiency is like, it's what you're pointing to, which I really appreciate is that there's also resource efficiency. It's not just sort of, you know, money isn't the only measurement for efficiency, so to say. So, I mean, there there are there are other currencies that we could uh, involve in this that that doesn't make us neither socialists nor hippies, uh, if you will. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. It, and also now that we have uh, seventeen trillion dollar in recovery funds around the world, uh, and of course we have. Uh, Look at the UK. I think they kind of borrowed like thirty billion for the last two years of COVID. Uh, US, the Netherlands, where I live, uh, that's also a serious problem. So I, I, I'm not uh, a pro-government, pro um, 
community as being the only answer. No, being efficient, being entrepreneurial. Uh, this is why I, I I believe in B Corps. I believe in uh, enterprises, whether they are for profit or for profit. Enterprises, basically, people get together to do things. Uh, that's also fundamental. So th- 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 there was a lot of good that was made, uh, created during this, say, neoliberal um, revolution in a way. But we lost sight of the meat of the ends. With again, means and ends. So the end is not accumulating capital or profit above all. The end is well-being for uh, well-being, reverence for people and planet. And so we need to readjust that balance. But so this is why uh, I, I am very uh, optimistic in many ways that at least in, in the in the world in the space that I'm in with. Uh, you know, more responsible, sustainable businesses, uh, impact investors, sustainable investors. There's a lot of good work being done, but uh, we get to that later. Uh, there are two or three big things that we need to do to be able to readdress the balance. And if you would take us into that world, the, the regenerative business world, uh, from your perspective, the way that you see it, um, what does it look like today? How, how do you experience it? Well, so then uh, the first thing I would say is, we need to stop doing what is uh, degenerative. So in the way, you know, this is the paradigm is degenerative, meaning uh, exploitative, uh, uh, non-renewable, so using resources that we cannot replenish, uh, also degenerative of people in terms of, uh, you know, their well-being and, and their livelihoods and uh, etc. So I think the first thing is to stop doing what is degenerative. That's already, you know, a very big agenda because basically that means also energy should be sustainable, renewable. Uh, The way we move around uh, should be revisited uh, quite drastically uh, because that's a lot of energy being used. Second big thing is, which is more of a um, maybe detour into values, into, I I don't mean spirituality too much, but in terms this this sort of, Attachment to materialism, consumer society that we have developed, uh, that has, of course, a double side. On the one side, it's obviously not good for sustainability because we consume far too much. You know, I, I was the other day reading the average old person who passes away has 10,000 items in their households. So basically, in a lifetime, you assemble, you 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 buy all this stuff, you know, and of course, most of this stuff, some stuff is very very useful, but not a lot of it is not useful. So, how do we shift away from a consumer society into a more service based society, uh, where the the growth of the individual uh, is more important than the growth of your own wealth and assets and consumptions? It's a big thing, you know, it's a big, this is a really big topic because, and we often don't talk about it, but uh, uh, there's no way we can achieve the objectives and the sort of uh, the SDGs and the planetary boundaries if we don't also address uh, this uh, profound, um, it's just this function in a way of the system yeah. that we keep needing to buy and to acquire and consume and accumulate so, I mean, the first is to stop doing degenerative things. The second is to start really addressing this question of consumption and attachment, uh, which the second thing I was saying is also we know that, uh, and by the way, I've been part of a pro- project uh, with, with Professor Jeffrey Sachs called the World Happiness Report. Well, if you look at happiness, happiness, of course, is not about having more things. It's, you know, you have to have some things. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, you you have to have a certain level of income to be satisfied, but above that level, happiness doesn't really change. So we need to also, you know, not being aware, not being afraid of dealing with this so-called soft issue of what is really happiness and understanding that happiness is not about just having, you know, uh, a second car, a third car and so on, which is also, in a way, it's a very spiritual discussion too. What what makes human beings thrive and being happy, etc.? So um, I'm just mentioning two or three uh, important. Uh, you, the question you you asked was regenerative business. So the quick answer is, and I, I this is something I learned from Satish Kumar, who is uh, the founder of the Schumacher College. 
And for him, the regenerative business par excellence is an apple orchard. So an apple orchard produces no waste. Everything is recycled. Everything is healthy. You basically, you can use the apples, you eat them. If you don't eat them, they fall onto the ground, they create fertilizer, and it helps the next uh, uh, apple uh, trees to grow. Every apple, of course, has lots of seeds, probably hundreds of seeds, at least dozens of seeds, and potentially every seed is a new apple plant, apple tree. So that is, that is you know, a little bit uh, minimalistic, but this is a really regenerative business. And in many ways, uh, say, agriculture as it was, done at the time of our grandparents or, you know, before industrial agriculture was quite regenerative. You know, everything was used. There was no waste. There was no pollution. We didn't have really fertilizers. So that's a, from a perspective of, of say, agriculture, food, etc. Of course, energy, well, we know regenerative energy is, is the sun, is the wind, is the waves, is energy which is uh, renewable, uh, because that's what the planet and the earth have given us. And in other uh, industries and sectors, it's basically minimizing the use of resources, whether you're using a circular model or, or you, you go even beyond circular. You know, I think we think regenerative is beyond circular. And you know, if you take the definition of uh, sustainability with Grohal uh, and Brundtland 30 years ago, that it was to leave the planet uh, in the state you found it and not in a kind of negative or, or worse state. And regenerative is actually to leave the planet in a better state than you found it. So uh, this is not a, like a black and white answer. Uh, you know, regenerative um, is a scale. So people like you and I or our children uh, or people younger than us, you know, uh, in a way, for them, it's about how more regenerative, how much more regenerative. And then, you know, the next generation again will, could try and be even more regenerative. So there is a kind of progression uh, in, in a way, achieving. Um, it's also the, how do we define uh, the kind of economic growth that we want? It's a whole other discussion, you know, beyond GDP and how do we measure, et cetera, which, of course, has to be about well-being and happiness. Uh, so if we also change the indicators that we use to guide our economies or, or drive our economies and focus much more on uh, you know, the well-being, services, education, uh, uh, even in a way the cultural sectors uh, and away from consumption. And we have many models, you know, there's, you know, the, 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 the donut model, there is, of course, uh, partly the planetary boundaries, is uh, the economy of the common good. Uh, we have a lot of attempts over the last 20, 30 years to, to, to show what it is. So it's not uh, sort of a utopia, uh, but it hasn't yet been done at a large scale. I really like what you're, what you're saying, though, regarding the, the regenerative model as being better than you already, because I've, you know, I, I come from from I've spent quite a bit of time in the in the petrochemicals industry for for like where we've been working with like sustainable flame retardants. And one of the things there is that it's, it's very hard to jump from where we are at the moment to something that looks like proper sort of. I mean, even circularity is like I mean, circularity is a really high bar to set if we are thinking in that paradigm. And yet, there's opportunity to do so many things that are just objectively better, like orders of magnitude better than we are already doing it. And so there seems to be an openness to both set an ambitious end target, but also start from where we are and, and really focus on these principles of improving your um, resource use and improving and then and shifting as technology becomes available. Because it's like, um, it's a high bar to set for a lot of the industry, a lot of the material, uh, especially the material industry, where we are talking about volumes that are you know, uh, unfathomable, like hundreds of millions of tons of material uh, and, and products that, that in, in one, one way or another needs to be produced or, or that the company relies on it. So it's, it's a really big mm, mind shift, if you will, that, that will take you out of the current paradigm and into the new and, and just the fact that you can, but, but there's also this hope that you can do something. You can take your responsibility now and start doing something. And as you get into it, you will also get informed by 
um, what is also possible because you will change your reference point, you will find new references and we can kind of mimetically also adapt other types of um, ideals, if you will, outside of the growth or the GDP um, based economy or like that, the, the, the economy that's limited to growth or GDP uh, as a measurement. Yeah, uh, it's a, this is a challenging one because, uh, you know, the scale uh, of what needs to be done to achieve this transformation uh, is, is massive. It's huge. I think there was just yesterday I received this uh, McKinsey report on what it takes to create it. Well, I don't know whether they use regenerative, but just basically to achieve the SDGs and get to 2030, it's just a massive shift. And, you know, our governments are just not ready to talk about it. Uh, this is like, you know, we should mobilize like as we were going to war, you know. This is a war against uh, a system that is no longer working. And we are in no way uh, tackling this the way it needs to be tackled. And and specifically, you give an example, the petrochemical industry. You know, I remember in Denmark 20 years ago, uh, the tax on cars was 100%. So, you know, some industries, well, maybe we don't want them anymore. Maybe, you know, the, the earth cannot carry certain industries. I mean, take all this mining now for these rare metals that go into our telephones and our batteries and so on. It's a big issue, you know. It, everyone knows that if, if everyone were to drive a Tesla or a small electric car, we wouldn't have enough uh, materials to build those these batteries. And then the other question is, what do we do with the batteries once they are gone? We haven't even factored that in. So it's a massive shift that requires, would require, because it doesn't at the moment, uh, a really truly uh, mobilizing our governments, our people, because of course it's people, uh, what people do at the end that matters, you know. If, if each one of our of the 8 billion people were able to live in a more sustainable, regenerative way, uh, then, of course, we would go much further towards the objectives. Uh, so that still gives me uh, reasons to, con to be concerned that humanity as a whole, like, you know, you maybe you know, uh, the, the Norwegian uh, environmentalist, which is actually a philosopher, Arne Ness, he was actually the guy who created, well, about deep ecology and the Gaia theory and so mm. on. So if we want to honor uh, their perspectives, we are very far behind in the kind of actions that we are taking as societies. But also, you know, Schumpeter, who was a famous economist, he talked about uh, creative destruction. And creative destruction was and is about uh, whole, whole industries may need to be uh, abolished. And, you know, by the way, when I used to live in the UK, the UK, I remember in those years, uh, everyone wanted to subsidize the textile industry and the coal industry, because otherwise you people, you would lose jobs. Well, you know, you can't do that forever. At some point, if, the, if it's a kind of dead end industry, you better get out of it and start new industries. So uh, this is where I think that if we use the power of finance, of investments, and direct it towards the industries of the future, and quickly get out of what we shouldn't be doing, then we have a much higher chance. And there are people like John Doerr, uh, D-O-E-R-R, -R, in Silicon Valley, who's just written a book a month ago or so about a really very detailed analysis of sectors, industries, what needs to be done to achieve this transformation. So at least on paper, it is possible. And we have had examples, you know, this is why uh, if we mobilize the way we did when we went to war, the, the Second World War, everything was designed to, 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 well, in that case, to win the war. And then it should be, now it should be designed to achieve this transformation that we need. So it is possible. It's just that we are not doing it. <laughs> no, and there's, a, there's this idea of the generator functions or like the, um, you know, what you were pointing to already, this confusion regarding what is the ends and what are the means, you know, and, and that also relates to your second point that you were in, in the list, that consumption and the attachment to stuff. It's almost like at this point in time where we are at, at such a high percentage of, of the global population that are, are uh, I mean, there's a lot of us that have food on the table, let's say, and, and maybe it's time, at least in the weird, the Western uh, educated, industrialized, that, that definition of weird, weird countries, um, start looking at, at uh, you know, the Maslow's, uh, Maslow's pyramid, at, at, you know, t turn it around or, or look at it as in a circle, like, you know, how, how do we 
it, what is our internal state that is um, pushing us to believe that we need so much more, um, if you will. Like there's a there's there's a at least an internal component into the patterns that we are reinforcing as necessary or what we need when we define what we need. You know, why do we define that? There's there's a question there that is um, for sure looming that I'm hearing. You know, in your introduction already with with endomia and, and, and oikos, like it's already there, like in the in the you, you I, I said it wrong. What is it? Eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, yeah. But I mean, I, I you know, now that uh, like if last week uh, Tishnatan passed away, you know, and you know Tishnatan is one, but you know Desmond Tutu passed away three weeks ago, and then uh, this E. O. Wilson passed away a month ago, and uh, Tom Lovejoy also a month ago. So these are four people who uh, they had the wisdom. I mean, your podcast is talking about wisdom, so. The wisdom, the human wisdom is, um, we know what it is. And we know clearly that, uh, like this guy I was reading this morning, this guy uh, used to work at SoftBank, is falling out with uh, with the founder, and he's demanding a $1 billion payoff. Now, I mean, hey, who needs a billion dollar payoff for two or three years of work, you know? And these guys in Wall Street, they're earning you know, maybe more, five, 10, 20 billion a year, these edge fund guys, you know? It's completely crazy. So we have lost sense of uh, well, the means and the ends. That's clearly. And so I think in a way, I, I think that what is sad is that, in a way, the higher you go in terms of power and power over resources of uh, power and, and wealth, the more difficult it becomes to, to lose that attachment. Unfortunately, it's not uh, uh, the average person in the street who really has to be blamed. Yeah, everyone can make a difference, but it's really those who are better off and those who are, in a way, uh, in charge of our societies, our economies. Uh, and that's a very difficult one to, to address. I, I Personally, I find that um, when I read and I learn from the wiser people in the world, it's very clear that we have lost the, we have lost the sense of direction. We're just going in a strange, in a completely destructive direction, which, by the way, it's destructive for us as human beings because it's always about this sort of competition with ourselves. You know, oh, I am better than you. I have more money than you. It's that kind of uh, always juggling at uh, your, your neighbor, what he or she has and the position and so on, rather than being much more collaborative and community-minded, which would also be... Um, a big saving on the planet because we wouldn't need to have all so much stuff, which we have now, you know? So that's a difficult one because that's basically you are addressing the, the human psyche. You know, Eric Fromm, the German psychologist, wrote about this, you know, to have or to be, this distinction between Habit und Sein, etc. So it's all there in, in our history, history, at least the history of thoughts, but we haven't addressed it. I mean, some people have addressed it, and I think that what is encouraging is and a lot of the next generation, you know, the younger, uh, even younger, uh, in uh, you know, entrepreneurs or business people who may inherit businesses, they really start thinking, seeing things very differently. Uh, even in the B Corp movement, there's quite a lot of young companies uh, that are started um, are much more purpose-driven. Uh, yes, you have to be sustainable financially, but you know you don't have to become a three dollar, three trillion dollar company like Apple. That shouldn't be the objective. So there is change happening, but uh, uh, it's by no means changing fast enough. And there's still too much of the degenerative things that we are doing that is hindering this transformation. And there's this, I mean. I'm interested in this idea of of not changing fast enough because I think I mean I I have two two paths of course then I, I look in the on the industrial side like to push back on this idea it's not changing fast enough there's a lot of change going on and then a lot of the time I'm questioning whether this is the right change or not we are implementing change for change's sake almost like there's there's so much talk about that we have to change that and I see changes where, where I'm just like, oh no, you know, this whole concept of regrettable substitution that, that um, like this, what the chemsec and like a number of like the people in, in the chemicals industry have been pushing for quite some time where you are replacing a, a bad chemical with, with something that's worse or equally bad, but it just 
different from 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 what you're doing. It's like there's a lot of kind of standstill. It's not really movement. It's change, but it's not movement. It's not going forward. So there's one thing there where I'm, you know, it's this old quote of, of uh, when you're in a crisis, slow down, or, or I, I can't remember exactly the, what the quote is, but there is a, a level of like, let's take a step back and look at what we are actually doing here. What are we trying to achieve? I think this is an important part. And then of course, like there is also so much happening. Like I, I'm, Again, from where I'm sitting, I'm involved in a lot of these communities that are very much focused on uh, both regenerative business as, in, as entrepreneurs and so forth, very passionate about purpose and, and for purpose and driv- driving these types of things, but also internal well-being of, of people and, and so forth. And, and there are so many people doing very rigorous, very, very good, very grounded work. And it's not one unified thing yet, but I'm wondering also if that model of how we um, evaluate whether something is happening enough or, or fast enough, or, uh, you know, if that's also part of our like, programming as we are seeing it right now, that, that it's part of the challenge that we are facing, that we are, we need to move from a quantitative economy into something which is more qualitative. And then it also means that we need to stop, we need to dare to stop counting everything. We, we, we need to count some things and we need to measure some things, but really question, how do we do that? How do we measure that? Because the measuring, I think, is part of the problem or the challenge that we're in front of. I don't know how you think about that. <laughs> I think about. No, it I'm lot. trying to think of um, of you know parallels or. Uh, I mean, there are certain countries like Costa Rica, New Zealand. Uh, I, I always very fond of Denmark and Sweden too. I think that the Nordic countries, everyone knows the Nordic countries have in a way, been the most uh, successful in combining this sort of uh, welfare, well-being with innovation, entrepreneurship. So due respect to the Nordic countries for that. In a way, they are still the best example in the world. But as you know, uh, it's also the, the, the total footprint that counts not only, you know, okay, well, Sweden is a large country, a lot of land and few people, but it has a global imprint, a footprint, you know. Uh, obviously, we live in a global economy, so that also has to be taken into account. So we're still quite unsustainable there. But lots of progress has been made. Uh, Costa Rica is a small country, of course. They're blessed with natural resources. But, you know, so have other countries. Like, why didn't Nicaragua or El Salvador or Mexico become like Costa Rica? You know, they could have taken the same position, you know, the same strategy. So there's something to learn there. I mean, at the moment, New Zealand is quite progressive. Uh, so as a country, they're, well, you know, also now that they have uh, nearly every week they pass a new uh, policy or a, a new uh, instrument to be able to uh, more, move more quickly into this transformation towards the SDGs 2030 and so on. Many other countries are stuck. Uh, even Germany. Germany, of course, is a fantastic country, fantastic economy, but they are too reliant on the car companies and uh, heavy industry, and they are behind in terms of this, uh, you know, transformation towards a regenerative economy. It's the, the real challenge is that you know, like someone that's once said, I don't know, maybe it was Mark Benioff or, or, or Larry Ellison at Oracle. It's like uh, you have to learn how to fly a plane whilst you're falling down. You know. So, like, you know, how do we transform this system, this huge system we have developed, the global economy, whilst at the same time, you know, keep people, um, you know, healthy and provide the livelihood, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't just say, well, let's close down all the oil companies. I mean, that could be done because they don't employ <laughs> so many people. But, I mean, you cannot obviously close down all the heavy industry. You have to have a plan and phase out things and, of course, replace it with new uh, sectors and industries. And that is, for what I've seen so far, this this book by John Doerr is one of the best in really outlining uh, what do we have to get out of and the new industries, etc. It's still written by venture capitalists, so uh, it's not written by a philosopher, but there's some good stuff in there. But... Uh, no, I mean, you, you give give me some lead here. I mean, what is the ultimate purpose also of our conversation? Mm. I, you know, we I start mean, the regenerative business. So uh, if you want, uh, let me just say one or two more things. One is that uh, 
Yeah, it's just also what I learned uh, in the work at the, of the B Corps. The B Corps, basically, you have a, 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 a you have a measurement system that measures how far you are in terms of your positive impact. So it is quite complex, but at the end, that's the objective: is to create an, a, a business, an enterprise that creates a positive impact. So, in economic terms, you know, fewer negative externalities and more positive externalities. So that is the the goal. And what's very clear is that it is a journey, and companies can, over two, three, four, five years, improve tremendously on this journey. So we need all our economists to do the same. We should have something like this for economists. We should measure how an economy becomes more impactful, regenerative. And then, you know, every month, every year, you, you, have, you have to make progress. So it's not something like you do, it's not like a black, a, a sort of a, a single bullet solution. You have to work on lots of things uh, over a period of time to make a difference. And, you know, in five, ten years' time, you know, we can do a lot. But we need to start now. You know, we can't say, well, you know, we keep delaying the moment. No, no, no. No. I, I agree. And and I think what you're pointing to is is really hopeful to me. It's like you you are focusing also on the speed of change. So it is it's both. That's one thing. Like, how how fast are we changing if we can create regenerative businesses that are regenerating faster where we are, where we are picking up uh, the speed. If we have a constant rate of speed and, and growing in volume, it would be more and more change per year. So this is, this is one thing. The second thing that I've been really inspired by the B Corp movement is also that there is room for contextual um, applications. So you can look at what is your business doing and define your targets and measurement points according to that, um, according to that, uh, uh, what you're actually doing, which I think is also incredibly important. It's hard to find unifying measurements that are, are supposed to show everything in, in one thing, but you're you're really focusing on like a, a number of metrics. Like it's the people, planet, profit. It's like already three. That's a complex story. And then on top of that, it's like, what is your context? What does it look like? Where are you starting from? Like, how are you improving? And how can you keep improving as you're improving? I mean, there, there are all these ideas around compounding um, that is very important and, and not to be dogmatic about it. Also allow that metrics change because as like is this old, very tired saying that what you measure is what you get. So we are addicted to measuring right now, but it's, it's, I think it's from my perspective, what I, why I brought it in was that I think it's important that we are looking clearly at what measurement, what is the, the shadow side or like the, the, the downside of measuring. It might be that that other things are left out, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't measure. It just means that we need to be aware of that dynamic, uh, that we put something in the spotlight, and then something falls out of the spotlight automatically. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. I, I didn't. Uh, uh, I'm just reflecting on this because uh, I think that uh, one of the biggest issues is what we were discussing earlier. Is this uh, there is a sort of human um, tendency to always want more. I mean, uh, religious leaders talk about greed and, uh, and it is, we, we are like that as human beings. So I, I'm, so there is something that comes even before measurement. So even if you didn't have a measurement system, there is a kind of human drive to always want more and have more. This is also what we talk about Maslow hierarchy and so on. So that is uh, a big challenge because of course, this is the planetary boundaries. We got to 8 billion people, and if everyone wants to have more, then it's finished. And you know, everyone who doesn't have yet what we have in the West, you know, of course, the big countries, you know, Africa and India, et cetera, China. So if you even start imagining everyone in the world having what the average American or European has, then it's game over, it's finished. So how do we change that? And of course, uh, we, the ones who are the wealthier in the world, uh, the one percent or ten percent, whatever, we are the one who ought to give the example and uh, take leadership. And that's not happening. So that's a really that's a big problem. I, I think that uh, you have communities, you have uh, sometimes regions or cities that make an attempt. Uh, there are attempts now. We have also in, inside our B movement, we have a program called Scotland Can Be, where the whole of the Scottish economy is using uh, these sort of uh, impact indicators. 
Uh, we want to have more. We have cities. We have some cities can be Barcelona, uh, Lisbon. There are, you know, leaders around our, our cities, our regions, who are not so, say, stuck by national governments, who can do certain things. You know, you can ban plastic. You can do these kind of things. Ban traffic, and uh, you know, uh, incentivize people to to bicycle, go electric. All these things, uh, absolutely very, very important. But it's the whole system that needs to change too, mm. uh, and that is uh, what is still not happening. Um, I mean, if you look at scenarios, because uh, again, this regenerative business, regenerative economy is a scale. It's not the, a one thing. So it's how do we move gradually, sometimes abruptly, towards a much more regenerative model. Uh, so I think there are uh, serious attempts in the, the agricultural space, in the food space. Of course, it's a long way away, but, you know, what's happening now with plant-based food, what companies like Danone and Unilever and other, many other smaller companies are trying to do, it's in the right direction. Energy, of course, we've already discussed energy. Clearly, you know, it's about uh, renewable energy, et cetera. Uh, there are even examples, uh, you know, we've been discussing with a couple of companies in the steel industry. They're moving towards so-called green steel or cir more circular. So there's good examples. Uh, but we have, um, you know, big elephants in the room. Like, you know, what's happening in all the oil-producing countries? You know, hey, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, what are they doing? You know, uh, Russia. So, <laughs> and and we have other big things. Like, you know, why do we spend, I don't know how many trillions a year on armaments and military spending? You know, it's quite well documented, you know. Uh, if we only spent... If we took away 10, 20% of our defense budgets, we could educate anywhere, everywhere in the world. You know? So it's huge amounts of money going into arms. Then there is the whole uh, issue of perverse subsidies. All the billions that we are still giving to industry that we should longer be subsidizing. So that's also a very big thing. So there are quite a lot of big um, issues that could make, a big, could make a huge difference if we really tackled them seriously. And I think there's one other, one other thing that I think I'm... Uh, I have learned over the years it can be very, very effective is, uh, you know, that there is a whole movement about social investment, uh, social bonds. People like Ronald Cohen in the UK has uh, pioneered this movement. And uh, it's basically investing back into your society by funding hospitals, schools, etc. Now, and I think that if we change our fiscal regime to uh, require a certain percentage of people's wealth to put back into social investment, which is not a charity, it's not a tax, you're not taking their money away, but you're basically nudging them to uh, contribute back to society. It can make a huge difference because, you know, there's plenty of money in the world. There's plenty of money. Everyone says, you know, everyone who is in the money world says how much money there is in the world, but uh, it shouldn't all be chasing the next unicorn. Some needs to be spent into our society through these social bonds, et cetera. So that could make a big difference. Only 10, 20% of people's assets could go in there. It will make quite a big, quite a big difference. Um, so we need to experiment with these models. Uh, we haven't really done it, but... Well, it sounds like you're saying it's almost like if, if we would spend some money collectively around uh, just increasing the pie size, then, then you don't have to compete about the, the 1 billion here or 1 billion there. I mean, it's like if you... If you can grow the entire because of people are, are well-being and we can extend the time horizon beyond whenever planetary collapse is is about to occur, uh, then then that would theoretically be more value for for the entire entire system, if you will. Uh, yeah, and I think it's also about responsibility and about uh, accountability. That uh, it's never going to work if we only focus on government doing these things. Because you want every individual to participate in this transformation, to understand why and then do something about it. And of course, governments, you know, governments can be fantastic, but they are often bureaucratic, they're often quite distant from people, et cetera, et cetera. So the ideal combination is a government uh, regime that uh, relies much more on citizens and uh, individual, individual and team participation 
in this transformation. It's, it's not going to work as a top-down model only. It has to be a kind of bottom-up and, and you know, all-in model where um, everyone participates in the transformation, also with their money, also you know, investing, in, investing back in schools and hospitals and so on. And I think what what we have seen, at least again in in the circles that I, I mean, you you create a status, and also you create some wanting around um, doing good things. So I mean, I see a lot of of the community that from my business school that have done well for themselves. Most of them are now focused on impact investing or or investing into regenerative businesses because they believe that they want to do something good for the world, and that in itself has become a, a status symbol as well. So I mean, there are these sort of social pressures and social mechanisms that we can we can they can both degenerate but they can also regenerate when we are using them in a in a nice mechanic and, and that is I'm, I'm also very much I, I tend to spend very little time on the top-down structures because I, I feel like I have very little to say there and, and little agency I can see some of the mechanisms but I I'm, I'm mostly passionate about also bringing new examples to be and that's where I think the B Corp movement have been so inspirational because it shows that we have companies that are doing something, they are conducting themselves in a certain way where where classical, again, economics or, or business, traditional business thinking, at least for the last 50 years or so, have said, if you do that, then you will be worse off. And instead, we are seeing thriving companies that are doing extremely well, that are both growing and they're sustaining themselves and they're employing a lot of, a lot of people. And um, people seem to be doing well in those businesses as well. So you have maybe a bigger brand loyalty and and values that are created from from just doing good. Also focusing on that parameter as a part of your mission in the world. So so it's inspiring when you are seeing movements that are creating new new paradigms or new um, reference points rather. What is the current state of the B Corp movement? I, I mean I, I'm very curious to see, because you've taken it to Europe. It's, it was an American. And would you just speak to both a little bit what it is for people that haven't uh, maybe encountered it? We've been talking about it on the podcast a few times, but nonetheless, just to give it a, a short introduction and also, um, you know, how it's what, what shape is it taking in Europe? So, yes, it was started in the United States uh, 16 years ago, but it was actually uh, after looking at what was working in Europe, that uh, the founders of B-Lab, uh, they were looking at the GRI, Global Reporting Initiative, at uh, IRIS, which started some of the first uh, ethical standards for business, the OECD guidelines for multinationals, uh, etc. And they came to the conclusion that Europe was more advanced, but had not quite created the sort of uh, business-friendly indicators that they develop as the B Corp impact assessment to certify B Corps. So uh, in that sense, it's not exactly American. It's like many ideas now can be from anywhere, but America, of course, was the place where uh, it took off. And Americans, you know, as Americans can do, they created a business model, they got the funding in place, and they started doing it. And then, you know, some six, seven, eight years later, 2013, uh, some of us, you know, in South America, in Europe, in the UK, and later in uh, Australia and uh, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, and and Asia, we made it global. And we made it global, and we made it uh, also, uh, we look for larger companies, Unilever, Danone, etc. So that's been the evolution. The state of the movement now is... Uh, 4,565 companies have been certified around the world. Uh, they're probably maybe two and a half, maybe equivalent number, 4,000 or so, waiting in the pipeline to certify around the world. Um, 125,000 users of the B Corp input assessment. So, you know, the, anyone could use the tools for free. It's a free tool. Uh, only when you, uh, you know, you score well enough uh, and you want to have the audit and the logo, then you pay a fee. But otherwise, every company, this, that's why we have 125,000 users and, and 4,500 companies. So many, many companies use the tools without certifying. It's the second, say, larger you know, uh, segment or, or community is 
uh, is what I call the benefit corporation by law. So there is a legislation now in eight countries. It's United States, in maybe 40 states, Italy, um, British Columbia, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, uh, Uruguay, and I think Australia that have passed the law. And so by law, the French have their entreprise mission, which is a sort of similar version. So there are maybe uh, 15,000 companies that have by law become uh, legalized as uh, for benefit corporations and growing. There are other countries that are discussing the legislation. So in a way, the combination of the certified B Corp, the certification, the legal form, plus uh, the investors behind these companies, uh, many investors use the tools without becoming B Corps. You can use the tools to assess the companies you invest in. We also have a, a thriving community of B lawyers or B accountants of uh, B academics. So there is a real new world emerging. Uh, that's very, very encouraging. The next destination is to more countries pass the legislation governments be more open about supporting this. And this is a bit this discussion about top-down and bottom-up. You know, governments can do a lot uh, if, you know, public procurement, uh, all the sort of, uh, like, take this 17 trillion recovery money that has been uh, allocated around the world. Uh, clearly, you know, if all this money were to go into, I don't mean weak course, but companies that are doing something that is regenerative, instead of degenerative. You know, I remember years ago, five years ago, or whenever the last financial crisis was, uh, Greece ended up spending much, a lot of, of that money into tanks and airplanes. You know, it's crazy, you know. We should put this money into regenerative economy. So that will be a very uh, important uh, objective to get uh, policymakers and the governance system of the economy to be more uh, outspoken uh, about uh, the kind of companies we want and be more selective because otherwise we won't get there. And then maybe the second uh, where there sort of movement where there is real energy is the investment community. The more and more investors uh, see that it is perfectly possible to make a good return in sustainable regenerative companies. So that's the shift away from coal, from oil. You know, in the Netherlands, Shell was taken to court. And other companies have been taken to court. There's a whole list of 30 companies that have been uh, targeted for, uh, you know, rapid uh, CO2 reductions, emissions. Uh, so there is uh, the combination of civil society pressure on investors and money that can go very far. Uh, and, you know, you have pension funds that are, you know, pension funds some in the Netherlands and elsewhere with two, three, four hundred billion euros when they start shifting, it has a big impact. Uh, and there are governments, like the last I learned is the government of Belgium decided in October, November last year that all their, say, public money will be in invested or, or spent according to, uh, you know, strict criteria of ESG, you know, environment, social governance. So that has potential too. So one is the policymaking, the government, governance of the economy, the other is the investment, the money. And, you know, uh, 240 million companies in the world, more or less, so we want to obviously get more companies to, uh, to take this road. And uh, not everyone can make it because it's not so easy, but uh, if everyone could use the tools, then, of course, 10%, 20% of these companies could become B Corps. What do you see as the, if you had a magic wand and, and could... Um implant let's say one one idea that would uh, make us we, ev, ev, otherwise everything is the same let's say but but one idea one one um i'm just curious about like what would you think is a a motor or a driver or or a something to focus on that you would like to uh, implant into the heads of of people in general in the world today like from from where you're sitting what do you think or what have you seen from your experience makes a big difference like how do you get yourself onto this path so that you can at least start changing, start becoming more and more regenerative? I mean, the, uh, at the bottom of all this is, is, a, is a consciousness shift because that's also the most lasting. You know, uh, 
if you look at things like a checklist of what to do, what not to do, that never gets to the real uh, motivations for why people do things. Motivations and, yeah, this is, uh, this is about consciousness. I, I, in a way, uh, it's, 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 a sort of, it's, it's a continuous learning journey. Uh, I think people are still very ignorant about these planetary boundaries, about the, you know, maybe there is one thing, that the one thing that could be a kind of silver bullet is it's something we require um, every company that becomes a B Corp, they have to sign a declaration of interdependence, which means, and actually I think I'm, I'm, I get to, I, I give you a very concrete answer. I've been kind of thinking about this over the years. Uh, so I connected with the declaration of interdependence. So I think there are three, um, say, pillars onto which our society is, is rests upon. The first is citizenship, citizens. Everywhere, everyone is a citizen, no, except, of course, unfortunately, those who are stateless for, you know, as you know, many terrible reasons, but it's still a minority, of course. So the majority of people are citizens of a country or multiple countries. So citizenship, the second is ownership, and the third is leadership. So if you take citizenship, ownership, leadership, and you start working on these. So citizenship, first one is uh, we don't really require much of our citizens. You basically, you have to vote. And even if you don't vote, you don't really get, you know, you don't get penalized too much. So, uh, and of course, you have to respect the law. Quite clearly, but there is no, uh, which in, in Roman times, it was around civic responsibilities. If you are a citizen, you also have responsibility for uh, your community and the environment where you live, etc. So I think that we should revisit what is citizenship and require citizens to be participants in this, uh, in the age of Anthropocene. Being a citizen is different than in previous ages. So I would say a total reinvention of what, what does it mean to be a citizen. The second thing is ownership. And in ownership, um, certainly I know in, in Catholic theology, ownership does not mean, say, uh, untrammeled use of your resources. You still have a responsibility to use your resources in the interest of the whole, in the interest of society. So even there, you could have some rules of ownership. If you are built Jeff Bezos, what? Fantastic. If you have all that money, I mean, hopefully you make your money ethically. But if you've made your money ethically, uh, you have a responsibility of how to use that money. So that, again, is what are the conditions, what are the conditionality for ownership? And thirdly, leadership. Leadership, you know, we don't ask our politicians to uh, be particularly proficient in anything. I mean, they don't have to pass a test. They don't have to sign the Hippocratic Oath, nothing like that. So why not? Why not require our leaders to also do what the, we expect doctors to sign the Hippocratic Oath? So why not something like that for leaders? So And then there, you can go further, you know, like, you know, uh, if you are a board director, uh, you have certain responsibilities. So it's very easy to find who the directors of companies are. You know, they are all registered. There's you know, databases of these people, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite easy to create a system uh, for owners, for leaders, uh, obviously for citizens, where you revisit uh, the DNA of what it means to be one of them and sometimes all three of them, citizen, owner, and leader, in the age of Anthropocene. Now, we haven't done this. So I think maybe this is the one thing that could have the biggest impact. Because it gets to the roots, it gets to the source of the problem, so that if every citizen, every owner, every leader in society were to become um, uh, aware and conscious of his or her uh, conduct and behavior in this transformation, then we would go a long way, uh, because we will touch the, root, the, the roots and, the, and basically everyone in society will become part of this transformation. And in this declaration of interdependence, would you just uh, explain what it is? Yeah, so this is uh, uh, originally, it's probably quite a Buddhist concept, but it was created by the B Corp movement. Uh, it's a statement, it's a commitment uh, that everyone that becomes a B Corp 
uh, understands and acts in the awareness that whatever we touch as a company has an implication, has an impact somewhere. So if I buy a T-shirt, you know about the story of T-shirts, we buy a T-shirt for two euros or whatever, you know, the, the lady in Bangladesh may get one or two cents, you know, and at what cost, you know, environmental, social, etc. So everything we do in the economy has an implication, has an impact, and therefore we have to be conscious and aware and, of course, take the consequential action. So maybe we shouldn't be buying a T-shirt for two euros, et cetera, et cetera. So that is the understanding. It's about the awareness that we are all connected to each other and everything we do has an impact somewhere. It's such a powerful, extremely powerful concept. I, I, I love that you brought that in as the, as the solution that you called upon it uh, to, to implant that into. Because if we understood that we were all connected, you know, and that could be in a very, very material sense, or if you want to put it in a more spiritual or consciousness direction, you could also do that. Um, but both of them are, at least in my view, true. So um, thank you very much, Marcel, for taking the time and for, for talking with me in this very sort of no, open No, pleasure. I mean, I, I love form. it. And I think it's wonderful to, for you to do this wonderful podcast. Uh, so thank you very much, Amit. Is there um, any resource that you would like to send direct people to if they're curious about the B Corp movement, if they want to get engaged, if they, is there anything else, any project where you would want people to would direct people's attention to? Well, uh, actually, uh, if you Google, if you search for B Corporation, you probably get 40 million hits. So there's a lot of stuff out there. So I, the thing is just Google B Corporation and you see there's a lot to read about. And uh, yeah, we have websites, bcorporation.net, benefitcorp.net, et cetera. But the best is just Google it and you find a lot and you find examples, et cetera. There's a YouTube channel, of course, with B, B, films on B Corps, et cetera. But just using Google, you find a lot. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward also to, to keep talking regenerative business because it's something that I'm very passionate about. And of course, we're like building and thinking about our own concepts and, and um, the work that you have been involved with personally and the movements that you are part of. I mean, those are the, the ones that we are inspired by. So thanks again for also the work that you're doing. Fantastic, wonderful, Amit. Thanks so much. All the best. Bye.